morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. I'm glad you're here because I heard you. <laughs> all right. So we're grateful that you can be with us this morning. Um, just a reminder that we have youth group here meeting on Wednesday night. So if you have young people that are interested in participating in that ministry, uh, see John Parker after the service. Uh, one of our dear friends, uh, Kathy Halpin, uh, tripped and fell this week and broke her hip. So uh, she had hip replacement surgery and is doing great. She came home, I think, the next day after the surgery. So she is, uh, was in a tough spot this week. And then also, uh, praise God, uh, she's experienced a lot of progress. Uh, would really encourage you. Kathy is one of the very faithful servants of others in our church family. I would really encourage you to think about sending her a card and uh, just thanking her for her constant service because when someone like her is uh, injured, uh, you're reminded of how much she actually does for this church family. So really want to encourage you to uh, take time to do that. Um, last Sunday, we talked about this process of our growth in Christ. And one of the texts that I wanted to just read for you as we come together this morning, it reminds us that our Christian experience is not m mainly made up of large decisions. Okay, sometimes we can think that our Christian life is built on moments of consequence. Okay, I'm not going to deny that, but we're also going to say that our it's like a brick house, okay? A brick house is built out of a lot of small pieces, and it makes a strong whole. And the same is true of our Christian experience. We live daily lives, somewhat routine. Sometimes they feel mundane for various reasons. But each day that we live in obedience to Christ matters. So Philippians 4 and verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there is anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And when you do, the God of peace will be with you. So when we walk into our daily life and we make small decisions, they ultimately have great consequence in our Christian experience. And Paul's promise to the believers in Philippi is, when you walk those little steps, conscious of God's presence, for his glory in obedience to him, the God of peace will be with you. It's encouraging, isn't it? So would you stand with me this morning as we uh, just pray and then we go into our season of worship, remembering that the hope is that our hearts through song together will be encouraged to walk the walk of faith for the glory of Jesus Christ in his strength. So Lord, this morning as we come, uh, we are conscious, Lord, of our need to be dependent upon you. We are grateful for your amazing work in our lives that Pastor James is going to speak of this morning. Uh, Lord, thank you for your sacrifice that is for our saving. Thank you that we need not contribute to the work that is finished through the cross. And, and Lord, I pray this morning that as we sing, we will, we will lay hold of that truth in a fresh way that deeply encourages our hearts together in Christ. 
We lift up Kathy before you, Lord. We thank you for protecting her and for bringing her through the surgery in such a beautiful and amazing way. So we pray your blessing to rest on her life. Uh, Lord, we also pray for a, a friend of mine, his dear wife and family. As he, uh, a pastor friend, uh, passed away of a heart attack this week for Virginia, his wife, and their adopted children. Father, I pray your just sweet grace over that family, sustaining, upholding, and encouraging them in this season. We also lift up Diana Kelly today, Lord, and just continually ask that your favor and your purpose would be worked out in her life. God, above all, I just simply ask that your healing hand would be present and evidenced in her life. Bless our worship this morning. Glorify Christ in what we sing and in what we listen to together and what we share with one another after the service. Be exalted in our midst today, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's worship. everybody. Let's sing Who Breaks the Power. Who breaks the power of sin and darkness? Whose love is mighty and so much stronger? The King of glory, the King above all kings. Who shakes the whole earth with hope? brings who brings our chaos back into order
sing, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Amazing grace, this is a failing love, that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross, you would lay down your life, that I would be set free, oh Jesus I sing for remember what love could remember no wrongs we have done omniscient all-knowing he counts not their sum thrown into a sea without bottom or shore our sins they are many his mercy is more praise the lord praise the lord
What riches? What riches of kindness He lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood me the dead we could
shall return. We shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the Praise the name. You sing. Lord, this morning we give you all the praise, all the glory. You are our Lord. You are our God. And Lord, even though we struggle in this world and we have issues and we have tendencies and all that, Lord, you are in control. Nothing is beyond you. And Lord, we thank you that you've already set us free from our sins by sending your son to die for us on the cross, that Jesus bore our burdens, bore our sins, and and took them into death, defeating death, rising again. And so I will also rise in Christ when he returns or when I fall asleep in Christ and see him face to face. Lord, we thank you this morning that we can worship and praise you. We ask that you would continue to help us to worship and praise you as we hear your word. And we ask your blessing over Pastor James as he speaks to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much. There's a question I ask my wife every day. It's not very profound, but here's the question. What's for dinner? (laughs) 
And she'll tell you. I mean, I'll ask that question every day. And I don't think I've ever heard from her, what are you cooking? Um, so um, I, I, I guess she could say that to me. Um, but uh, trust me, she would not want me to cook. And uh, I've been blessed with her ability to be able to cook for me and our family. And why am I starting out with meals? Well, today we're going to be talking about a meal. And we're going to be talking about a, the most important meal that has ever been given for all time. Meals are important. I love the opportunity, once again, I probably don't do as much work, when we host people in our home, family members or friends. As my wife is shirking back there, I'm sure I don't do much. <laughs> There's a lot that goes into those meals. You have to plan who you're going to bring to the meal. You also have to um, prepare the menu. And not only preparing the menu, you also have to prepare the meal. And there's cleanup before and there's cleanup after. And if you're a guest, you don't have to worry about any of that. You just come, participate in the meal, and then you leave. But if you're the host or the family member, you're doing all of that work. I want you to think about that today. That this meal that Jesus is preparing for his disciples on the very last night before his crucifixion, he's preparing this meal for them. And he's speaking to them about some very specific things that are going to happen in this meal. There's a second thing I want you to think about is this. Mark has a way of writing, and they call it Mark sandwiches or Markin sandwiches intercolations, okay? And what he does, and you've seen a number of them, what he does is he, he takes, like a, a, like a good sandwich, you have bread and then you have the meat in between. And you'll have the bread, one piece of bread, and the second piece of bread, and right there is the meat in between. And that's what Mark tends to do when he writes. And if you've been noticing, he tends to start with a particular story, story A, And then he seems to get distracted as though he had ADD or something like that, but he doesn't. He goes to a completely different story from our viewpoint, story B, and then he comes back to story A. I think we have one of those perhaps here tonight or today. I want you to think about some of them that we've seen. I got a chance to preach on one of them where Mark was talking about the family members of Jesus that thought he was crazy. And then he started to talk about the condemning Pharisees, and then in there was the blasphemy in the Holy Spirit, and then he came back again to his family at the end, and he says, your family is outside, and Jesus in essence said, no, my family's right here, or the, the people that are the insiders. Um, Pastor Tim, last week, got a chance to give us another one of those. We had the plot to kill Jesus, and then at the end, we have Judas, and then right in the middle, we had that extravagant story. We have another one where um, we have Jairus' daughter um, that had died, and then we have the woman caught in the flow of blood, and then he comes back to Jairus' daughter. And, and the reason why Mark works in that way is this, the outer story is being told really by that inner message. So it's important to fix on the inner message. You know, I love bread, but bread is no, it's not really good unless you have something in between that bread. 
And so I want you to think about that as we look at this Mark in the sandwich. Look here with me. I'm going to actually back up to a couple of verses that Pastor Tim did last week. We're going to start at verse 10, and we're going to work our way to verse 31 in the message today. Here's the word of the Lord. Mark chapter 14, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him, Jesus. Verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lambs, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples, another um, gospel tells us Peter and John, um, and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepared for us. The disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came to the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They, they, began, they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said, it is the one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread in the dish with me, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Verse 22. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank all of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is God's sufficient, eternal, authoritative, life-giving, and life-changing word. Would you pray with me? So, so Father, we, we have a very special meal here. We have a perfect host, and we have a perfect meal. Jesus is not caught off guard by what is happening. He knows he is sovereignly in control. He is infinitely wise. He is perfectly loving. He knows what is occurring here. He knows that there's a traitor in his ranks, but it does not deter him. 
I thank you that even in the midst of this betrayal, he is still showing love and grace and kindness and favor. I pray that that would be the God that we look to today. I pray your Holy Spirit, Lord, would open our eyes to see the truth of this passage, but more importantly, the truth of your Son. And I pray that he would transform our hearts and change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right, so we have his, the sandwich effect, and I think what you'll see is the sandwich effect starts with um, Judas's prediction of his betrayal, and at the end we say Peter and all the other apostles denying Christ or rejecting Christ, and then the middle we're going to have the Lord's Supper. Okay, so we'll, we'll talk about that and try to work our way through it. Let's start with this. In verses 12 through um, Verse 10 through 11, we see the prediction of Judas's betrayal, the prediction of Judas's betrayal. And I want you to look here with me at each one of these little points here. It kind of uh, jumped out at me as I was reading this. It says Judas, um, I believe his name comes from Judah, um, the original name Judah, from Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. One of the first things that jumped out at me is this. A betrayer tends to be somebody that's very close to you at times. Uh, You know, a a family member, a friend, it could be a wife, it could be a husband, it could be a child, it could be almost anybody. You know, it could be a church member. It's somebody that's very close to you. They can't really betray you unless they have a close and intimate relationship with you, and that's what Judas is. Judas is one of the twelve. Jesus Christ had sovereignly chosen him to be part of his, his family, in essence part of his group, and, and Judas rebelled. Second, I see not only is a betrayer close, but second, he, he went to the chief priest. What do we find out about a betrayer? They're hiding something. They're lying. There's a deception that is there. There is clearly no way in the world that Judas told Jesus and the rest of the 12 that I am going to my enemy, Christ's enemy. They're hiding something. Betrayers oftentimes will do that. They will lie to you. They will lie about you, and they're hiding something, and they're deceiving. The third thing that jumps out, he says, it's one of the 12 who went to the chief priest in order to. Those three words, in order to. It's planned. It's premeditated. It is, he is, has a purpose that is behind it. This betrayer is not just caught off guard that the chief priests and Pharisees are coming to him and he's now caught off guard. That's not what is happening with this betrayer. He has planned this. He is going to Jesus Christ's betrayers. There's a plan. It's premeditated. He's close. He's hiding something. He's deceptive. He's premeditating. But then he is a betrayer. To be betrayed is somebody that has broken your trust, turned on you. Maybe you've felt that way before. I, I know I have. As, as you've had people in your life that you thought you could trust and then they turn their back on you. How do you respond? They were close. He was hiding something. It was premeditated. He's breaking trust. But then it says, betraying him, Christ, to them. He's joining the ranks of the other group. I don't know what was leading Judas to do this, but he was going against his Lord and Savior, or the Lord and Savior. It wasn't his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I find something else interesting here in verse 11. It says, and when they heard it, they were glad. I don't know, a verse popped out in my head um, from 
1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. And it talked in there, you remember love is patient, love is kind, and all those things. But in there it also says, love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices in truth. These group of people are rejoicing. They're glad at what? The most righteous one who's ever walked on this earth is now being betrayed and being condemned. Oftentimes, we'll find the motive is found here. It says, and promise to give him what? Money. Now, I don't know what it is. There's often a motive that drives a person to betray you. An idol, scripture would call it. Something that other than Christ, other than God that's driving them, it's motivating them, it's desire, it's causing them to drive to this, this need, whatever it is. Well, for Judas, we know that part of Judas's problem was money. He was the keeper of the bag, and he was pulling money out of that bag from time to time. And in fact, in Pastor Tim's sermon just last week, we find that he was probably the one that was calculating how much this ointment cost and getting the disciples to say, you shouldn't have spent all this money by pouring it out on Christ. What a waste. It was primarily because he wanted to pull money out. He would have rather have her donate that to our purse And then I could have gotten my portion of it. The last thing I see here about this betrayer, he's he's close, he's hiding something, it's premeditated, he's breaking trust, he's joining the other rank, he's um, rejoicing in evil, he's maybe motivated by greed, but then there's the last thing, he sought an opportunity. You know, All of us in this room can fall to a potential sin. You get tempted and you just do something. You know, you escalate your emotions. You're not even thinking clearly. You do something or say something and all of a sudden you come to your senses and say, wait a minute, what was I doing? That's That's not what Judas is doing here. Judas is on this path and he did not wake up the next morning or the next hour and say, wait a minute, what am I doing? He did not. He didn't repent. He didn't turn. He became harder and harder, unrepentant, hard heart, blinded, rejection of Christ. How did Jesus respond to this person? How would you? Let's keep going. Verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lambs, his disciples came to him and said, what are we going to do? And I want you to think about the, the Passover. I want you to think about this story of the people of God. Now, now, God had created humanity, Adam and Eve, and then they had children time after time, over time. And then there was one child that was created, Abram. And we have a story of Abram, and Abram was married to Sarai. And, and God proclaimed, gave a covenant, that I am going to make you a great nation, Abram. But the problem is that Abram and Sarai had no children. So it's like, how are we going to be a great nation? And, and God says, I'm going to give you a child. And, and the long story short, eventually, God gave them a child of the two of them in their old age. And then, not just that one child, but they gave him children after children. And the story, and you'll see it in Genesis, is of this family, starting with Abram, all the way to the end of the story. And we have Joseph, I'm sorry, Joseph, can't get my J's right. 
And, and Joseph is now betrayed by his brothers. He's thrown into a prison. He's wrongly accused. He is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you remember at the end of Genesis, there's a great famine that is happening in the land. And Joseph, now in leadership, brings his family around Egypt to take part and live in Egypt. Hundreds of years after Genesis, we see that the people of God, these Hebrew people, have grown in amazing numbers. But now what we find as we go into Exodus, we are going to find that they are enslaved. They're being enslaved by the Egyptians. And so now as they're enslaved by the Egyptians, the Egyptians are seeing that this number of these slaves are getting great. And the Pharaoh at the time says this. He says, I don't want them to continue to grow in number because they may overtake us. So what does he do? He plans to slaughter young males. And Moses, a little baby, born at that time, is going to be one of the ones that is going to be slaughtered. So, so what does his mother do? His mother puts him in a little bassinet or something on the water and sends him away. And by the sovereign grace of God, God brings that little baby to Pharaoh's daughter. And she raises him as her own. And so Moses is saved from certain death. Forty years later, we find that Moses now running in this group of Egyptians. He's been educated. He's been raising up in this family. Moses is now finding himself knowing that he is part of the Hebrew group. Sees one of his Hebrew fellow men being acute, um, being wrongly treated. And so what does he do? He murders that person that is mistreating this Hebrew. When Pharaoh finds out, Moses hightails it out of there. And for the next 40 years, he is wandering in the wilderness. And then at 80 years old, then what happens? God comes to Moses and says, I'm going to use you as the person that is going to get my people out of bondage. And he sends him back into Egypt with a message. Here's the message. Let my people go. The Pharaoh at the time says no. (laughs) So God tries to persuade him through nine plagues. These plagues work up in intensity. And every time you could see the Pharaoh kind of buckles a little bit, but then eventually he goes back to the hardened heart. No. And on a night, God says before the 10th plague, what he does is he says this. I want all of my people to gather together in their homes and their families. And I want you to take a lamb and I want you to slit its throat. And I want you to bleed it. And I want, it's graphic. And I want you to take the blood and put it over the, the post in your doors. And then at this night, I'm going to send, God says, an angel of death to go over this whole group. And every firstborn male that is not under the blood is going to die. I'm a firstborn. I would die. And then Pharaoh will let your people go. That night, when they're preparing the lamb, they they had to eat it quickly. There's another thing that they would do. They They made this bread 
unleavened bread. They didn't have time. Leaven was kind of like a yeast. They did not have time to prepare the, the yeast to rise. So what they did was they created unleavened bread, bread without yeast. Now that theme is going to run throughout scripture. Leaven is going to be used for sin, a theme of sin. And it's also going to be used as a theme of wrong or false religion. So God is now ordaining for them every year to celebrate. Oh, I should tell you what happens. So the death angel comes. The children are gone. And Pharaoh says, go. Get out of here. And so now they are plundering Egypt. They are leaving and they are running out, praising God that God has relieved them from their bondage. And then Pharaoh wakes up and says, wait a minute. I'm going after them. And they've got the Red Sea in front of them. They've got Pharaoh's army behind them. And now they're crying out again, what in the world's going to go on? And then miraculously, what, is, what does God do through Moses? He opens the Red Sea and they go through on dry land. And they are saved. So on the first day of unleavened bread which is a weekly festival. They had a festival where they would have to um, celebrate this every year as a commemoration. And the first day of the week of unleavened bread would be the Passover. And you would celebrate that Passover celebration. A lamb would be slain. You would cook it. There would be hymns. There would be a number of things that would take part in this. So on the first day, we see here in verse 12, the disciples know that Jesus was going to want to celebrate the Passover. Well, he does. And he says, I want you to go and prepare this Passover. What, what I find interesting is this. As you look in verses 12 and following, it says, where will we go to prepare a, a feast for you for the Passover? And he said to them, he said to the two disciples, go into the city. And then, as I read earlier, he has already preordained what is going to happen. There's going to be a man walking with a jar, which is really unusual in this culture. Usually it was the women that would be walking with the jars. You remember as we saw the woman in the well in John chapter 14, she was the one that went to the well to get the water. That's what you would normally expect. But a man who's walking with water would not be expected, so it would jump out to them that that's got to be the one. And then they followed that man, and they got to this, this other man's house, the master's house, and he had a large upper room, and it was prepared for Jesus to take his Passover. I want you to see a Christ who is not caught off guard by Judas, but he's also not caught off guard by the plan for this Passover. Jesus is sovereignly in control. He tells his disciples exactly what to do. He is prepared. He's a perfect host. He's got everything settled. He's got, he's got the place. He's got the time. He's even gotten the meal that is going to be prepared. He is your perfect host. It's nothing that you have to worry about, nothing that you have to do. Now, Jesus is not only this perfect host that goes up to the room, but now he talks about this betrayal that is going to come. Look at here in verse 17. I'm going to jump down to verse 17. And when it was evening, he came to the twelve, and they were reclining. So now what they did was they tended to recline. Jesus would be on his left arm, and they were reclining. We sit at a table. They were reclining um, to eat this meal. And some believe that John is right in front of him as he's leaning on his elbow. John has got his back to him, and that Judas, in all likelihood, is right behind Jesus. This is, a, this is a special place of honor to be close to Christ. 
And Jesus gave that to Judas. He says, truly, I say to you, one of you who is eating with me is going to betray me. Now, I was talking to you about betrayal earlier and the prediction of the betrayal. It's so shocking to the disciples that one of us, one of the 12, is going to reject Christ. I want you to think about the time that you've been betrayed. Was it shocking to you? Was it surprising to you? Was it painful to you? I'm sure it was. It was to all of the disciples that were around. It wasn't to Jesus. Jesus knew. He wasn't shocked. But it was painful to Jesus. And as Jesus is sitting there taking part in this meal, this celebration, and thinking about the fact that he's going to go to a cross the next day, Jesus is sitting there with Judas. If you read the other gospel accounts, in fact, John chapter 13, what you're going to find is that he is actually going to wash Judas's feet. I want you to think about your betrayer. Would you cook a meal for your betrayer? Would you wash your betrayer's feet? Would you show love and kindness? That's why Paul in Romans, you remember in Romans chapter 12, he said, uh, he tells us, do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. Well, that's the heart of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is being so gracious and kind to Judas. But there's a sorrow in his heart that this one that I love, this one that I care for, this one that I chose to be part of my 12 is lying to me, has rejected me, has betrayed me. And Jesus says he is burdened in his heart and he says that this one, one of you is going to betray me. This is a line here that jumped out at me. Verse 19. They began to be sorrowful, all the disciples, and say to him, one after another, is it I? If somebody came to me and said, you're going to betray me, and it's like, is it me? I could, I could almost, it's like, I, I can't even imagine. I don't want to betray you. But the treachery of Judas... The hypocrisy of Judas, is it I? I almost can hear the tone in his voice. There is this condemning, this hypocritical. He is, he is un, he's lacks humility. He is unhum, he's not humble. It's just sickening to say, is it I? Well, absolutely it is you, Judas. He knows it. I think he's trying to put something over Christ, but you can't. And then he says this in verse 20. He said to them, Is one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread with me into the bowl with me? And the Son of Man goes out as it's written. Jesus is saying, I'm going to do what I'm called to do. But woe, judgment, to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Every single one of us in this room, when you were born, in all likelihood, um, somebody took joy in that. Your mom or somebody took joy in your birth. They, they took joy in knowing that you were here in this world. And if they didn't take joy in the initial birth, they took joy in you. I know that there are people in your life that have taken joy in you. Maybe very few. But there are people that have taken joy in you. I can't imagine Judas's family who took joy in hearing about Judas. In fact, they named it Judah. I mean, after the tribe Judah. 
I mean, they took joy in him. And could you imagine that it is your son for all of time that is going to reject the Messiah, the son of God? Jesus says that uh, you are responsible, Judas, but he also says this, you have a frightening destiny. That for the one that rejects the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a frightening destiny that is awaiting them. You have turned away from the only one that can provide you hope and healing. I pray that there's no one here in this room that's doing that today. Now Jesus then goes to the Passover. I I believe that if you take the accounts in all likelihood, other gospel accounts say that Jesus told Judas, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly, and that Judas leaves at this point. I believe that he probably has left the scene. I'm not positive, but I believe he probably has left the scene here. Now we go to verse 22, and we have Passover is redefined. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to them. And he says, take, this is my body. And he took the cup, and he gave thanks. And when he had given it to them, he drank, they drank all of it. And he said to this is the covenant, which is poured out for many. Covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink of this again, of the fruit of the vine, until the day when I drink of it anew. I, I want you to think about the Lord's Supper. We just took it last week. And there was bread and there was a cup. And these two things are symbolizing what Christ did. Now, there are some churches out there, that some pl- religions out there that will teach that what occurs at that communion table is that Jesus Christ is being re-crucified. It's not happening. Jesus Christ was crucified once for sin. This does not literally become his body and literally become his blood and that he is being re-crucified again and again and again and again. No. Those were the Passover lambs. Jesus Christ died once for sin, once for all that will trust. So, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are looking at bread, which doesn't become his literal body, But it symbolizes his body. And the cup, which does not become his literal blood, but it symbolizes literal blood. And when we take it, there is something special that happens in the communion service. There's something special that happens in a baptismal service. These are the two ordinances that God has given the Christian church. The ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of Lord's Supper symbolize Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We honor him through those times that we do that. And Jesus talks about a covenant. A covenant is a promise. It's a ratification. There were several covenants in the Old Testament. I told you of one with Abraham, that Abraham, you are going to become a great nation. And this was a covenant that God had promised to Abraham. But going further back from Abraham, we have Adam and Eve. We have an issue of sin. That all of humanity has fallen in Adam and Eve and we are under guilt. When Adam and Eve sinned, every single one of us sinned. Guilt is our legal status. Punishment is what we deserve. Corruption comes into our lives. And the dilemma is this. How do you and I ever find an opportunity for salvation? 
Well, what Jesus said is this, that what happened in the Passover, a lamb was substituted, a lamb was sacrificed, a lamb's blood was spilled, and your sins were covered. And what Jesus is saying is this, I'm going to give you a new covenant. You don't have to sacrifice a lamb any longer. You don't have to spill the blood of an innocent lamb. You will see this blood spilled of the perfect son of God for you. Salvation is this. Jesus took the wrath of God, the cup of wrath of God for you so that he could give you a cup of blessing for your life. See, salvation is this, that Jesus substituted himself for you and for me. He took your place. Salvation is this, that Jesus Christ became the sacrifice. No longer do you have to kill a lamb. Jesus Christ became the one who died in your place. Once for all time, he took our guilt. He bore our punishment that you and I deserve. He took it for you. He became a substitute, a sacrifice. He became a satisfaction. You know what the lambs, all of those lambs in the Old Testament did? It just forestalled God's anger. It was a temporary covering. It didn't take away your sins. It did not take away the punishment. It temporarily was looking forward to Christ. Jesus Christ became an ultimate satisfaction. Jesus paid for your sins. He ex- God accepted that payment as payment in full. Your debt is canceled if you are in Christ. He became a substitution, a sacrifice, a satisfaction. He becomes your security. You don't ever have to worry about, did I do enough to appease God? You will never do enough to appease Christ or do to appease God. Christ has done it all for you. Every single one of you, if you trust in him. His life, perfect life, has been lived for you. His death, a perfect death, has been poured out for you. The substitution, the sacrifice, the satisfaction, the security that is yours in Christ. If you will simply trust in him. I love this, what the writer to the Hebrews said. In Hebrews 9, it says this, verse 24 through 28. For Christ has entered not into a holy place made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest who entered the holy places year after year with the blood not of his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of this world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Christ. And just as it is appointed for men once to die, And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. Do you hear it? That Jesus Christ doesn't have to be sacrificed over and over and over again because he is your perfect substitute. He is your perfect sacrifice. He is the ultimate satisfaction, and he provides you the greatest security that you will ever know. He is a perfect host, but he is preparing for you the perfect meal. Take, eat. This is my body, which is poured out for you.
This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. So salvation is this beautiful thing that God gives you forgiveness. Because all of us are guilty sinners and he gives you forgiveness and we call it justification. He declares you righteous. He takes your sin and puts it on Christ. He takes Christ's righteousness and puts it on you. You are viewed in Christ, in God's eyes, as though you lived the perfect life of Christ. Forgiveness. He gives you a new status. But salvation is not just that he gives you a new status. He gives you a new freedom. He regenerates you. He brings you to life. He gives you a new heart. It says this in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, a house of Judah. And it says in verse 33, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people, and no longer shall they teach each his neighbor and each his brothers, and know the Lord. They shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. What God has promised you is not only forgiveness, a new status. He's provided you a new freedom, a new heart, and a new ability to trust him. Ezekiel 36 says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my ways. Salvation is beautiful because it gives you a new forgiveness, a new heart. It gives you a new status. It gives you freedom, a new heart. It also gives you fellowship. A good meal is about fellowship, right? Well, you have a family. Maybe your family has rejected you. Maybe that person that you were thinking of before, your betrayer, maybe it's somebody very close to you. I can tell you that all of those people will reject you, perhaps, but the one who will never reject you is the Lord Jesus Christ. You have forgiveness, you have freedom, you have a family, and that's salvation. But salvation is this, or those are the benefits of salvation. Salvation comes down to three things. I want you to think about these three things, and I'll wrap it up in here in a moment. Salvation comes down to knowledge, salvation comes down to belief, and salvation comes down to trust. Knowledge. You need to know who God is and who you are, and you need to know that you are separated from him because of your sin. You need to have a general awareness of who God is, that revelation. God has given us revelation in nature. God has given us revelation in our conscience. And then God has given us revelation in his word. And then he gave us ultimate really revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's revealed himself time after time. And for those of you that sit in a Christian church, you have heard, you've seen the revelation in nature. You have the revelation of your conscience. You've heard the revelation of your word and you've heard of Christ. So you, you've got all of this revelation, but that doesn't make a person saved. It does, it's not just knowledge. It's belief. And it has to include belief. And belief is not only that you have a knowledge of these things, but you believe them to be true. You hold fast to them. Jesus had said to uh, Nicodemus, you're a rabbi, you're a teacher, but you're coming to me as though you need information. You should have this information already. 
In Acts chapter 26, verse 27, Paul was before King Agrippa, and he says, Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. But King Agrippa wasn't a believer. He, he wasn't a true converting person of Christ. He had knowledge and he had belief, but that's not enough to be saved. See, it's not enough to have a knowledge and a belief. It is not sufficient. In James chapter 2, it talks about the fact that the demons believe and even shudder before Christ. It's not enough that you know knowledge. It's not enough that you even just believe. You must trust. You must trust that Christ alone is Savior and Lord. That he is the only one that can save you from your sins. He is the only meal that is going to be worth anything. He is the only host that will prepare a table well. You remember in Psalm 23? Two themes in Psalm 23. The Lord is my what? Shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pasture. He leads me by quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. And then what's the next theme? If the first theme is shepherding, what's the second theme? A meal, a perfect host, and a perfect meal. I'm preparing a table before you in the presence of your enemies. I will anoint your head with oil. My cup runs over. So what does it mean to trust Christ? (laughs) Trusting Christ means that you receive Christ. In John chapter 1, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You must receive him, but you also must come to him. It's not just receiving him, it's coming to him. In Matthew, it says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. In John chapter 6, verse 37, it says, All that the Father has given me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Come to Christ. You need to receive him. You need to come to him. You need to draw near to him. In Hebrews 7, 25, it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, Christ, since he's always living to make intercession for those who come to Christ. So what does it mean? You must trust that Jesus Christ is Lord. Romans chapter 10 says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is what? Lord. And believe in your what? heart that God has what raised him from the dead then you will be what saved so we have the prediction that Judas is going his his preparation to betray Jesus the preparation of the meal that Jesus Christ is the perfect worker this wonderful meal he is Passover is redefined here No longer is an animal going to be sacrificed year after year. It's going to be one sacrifice. Now I want you to see the final prediction of failure. Jump down to verse 27. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. I will strike the shepherd. This is from the Old Testament. The sheep will be scattered. If you take out the leader, other people tend to fall. And what do we see here? We see the prediction of their failure. You will all fall away. And there's a promise of hope here. I love this. He says, but after I am raised, I will go. He says, you're going to fall, but after I do my work and I'm raised from the dead, I'm going to come back and I will find you. What a promise of hope. That in the midst of our failure, in the midst of our flaws, in the midst of our sin, Jesus Christ says, I am coming to you 
I mean, I'm, I'm going to find you. But we have the protestations of the disciples. We have Peter who says, even though all fall away, I will not. I want you to hear this self-exaltation in Peter. It's just amazing. It's almost like if I were to elevate myself above Tim and Doug and say, if I did this. I mean, it's like, that would be just so prideful, right? Peter's raising himself up above the rest of the 11. I'm not going to fall away. The presumption, the pride, the self-exaltation, the self-reliance, the self-sufficiency, but the self-deception. All the protestations that Peter's making. And then what Jesus does is this. I want you to know, Peter, that Satan, he says in another gospel message, has claimed to sift you like wheat. But I'm praying for you. And then when you do fall, because you are going to fall, I want you to come back and strengthen the apostles. Once again, another promise of hope in the midst of Peter's failure. And could see that Peter's protestation now spreads to them all. They all have said the same thing. So we have the ultimate betrayer, Judas. One piece of the bread. A temporal betrayer, Peter. And the rest of the disciples. And in the middle, we have Christ, who is faithful, loving, gracious, perfect, the perfect host, the perfect meal spread out for you. I'll end with this. Love this hymn. This hymn is uh, Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings. And in the hymn, the writer to the hymn, um, Robert Robinson, I think, he, he was a riotous guy. He lived a riotous life. And uh, he was with his friends, really worldly. And they had claimed uh, they were going to actually go to an evangelist. An evangelist was coming into town, and they were going to go and heckle this evangelist, right? So the guy is up there preaching. They were going to heckle him. But as the preacher is preaching, the Holy Spirit got a hold of this man's heart and opened his blind eyes and drew him to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was going there to heckle him, but he was hounded by the Holy Spirit and drawn to faith in Christ. And he trusted in Christ alone. It wasn't just the knowledge. It wasn't just belief. It was trust. And he wrote this hymn. Listen to a couple of these words. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, calls for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it. The mount of God's, what, redeeming love. Oh, I love that. And then he goes... Verse 3, it says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, a tie me, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it to thy courts above. Can I tell you one quick story about what happened with him? Came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, became a hymn writer, minister of the gospel, fell away. 
in a stagecoach, apparently. In a stagecoach, he's sitting there and is sitting next to a woman who says, oh, I love this hymn. And she starts quoting this hymn. <laughs> and he's like trying to change the subject. It's like, I don't want to deal with this. And it's like, and then finally she says, you, you really like the hymn? And he says, yeah, I wrote the hymn. <laughs> and he came back to faith. See, his was not a Judas fall. His was a Peter fall. Every one of us in here are at least Peter. I pray that there's no Judases here. But the one thing I can say about this with Judas is this. If Judas had trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior, he could have been saved. He didn't. Peter did trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior, and he was. So today, I, I want you to think about this. Judas is not really confirmed in any of us. The unpardonable sin is not confirmed in any of us until we take our last breath. So today is the day for your salvation. I don't know what you've done. I don't know how far you've gone. But I want you to know this. If the Holy Spirit is talking to you today, turn to Christ. Turn to the one in the middle of this sandwich. Turn to the perfect host. Turn to the perfect meal. Trust him today. Don't walk out of here not trusting him. Would you pray with me? Father, there are far too many times that I have found myself feeling betrayed and there's probably far too many times that other people have felt betrayed by me. And Father, in, in that betrayal, I, they or I have thought selfishly and hid things and ran away and did things that were for my own benefit and not them and, and God forbid, maybe even rejoiced at things that were not right. I pray that that's not us. I know that there's plenty of times I've been Peter where I've trusted in my own self-reliance and self-sufficiency, where I've exalted myself and I've been self-deceived. And a covenant breaker, Lord. And I look to the one who is the covenant keeper, your son. I don't have to bleed a lamb any longer. Your son was bled for me and for all that trust in you. I pray today is the day that we run away from our guilt, run away from the condemnation, run away from the punishment. Trust in your son. I pray that this would be the day that we wouldn't just simply trust in him, but believe in him. And we wouldn't just simply trust and believe in him, but we would rely upon him not just rely on information but rely on him because he alone is our savior if there's anyone here today that has never trusted in your son i pray that they would not walk out these doors without trusting in him but for the many of us that do know you lord i pray that we would remind ourselves we've got a perfect host in your son we've got a perfect meal that he's prepared for us help us to eat upon that be nourished upon him day after day by faith and help us to praise him in Jesus' name.
Amen. Strong. 
Yes, Lord, we thank you this morning that we can sing together and hear your word and understand that though our sins are many, God, you have a plan. You had a plan. You sent Jesus to die for us. And God, we thank you that you've invited us to the table, that we are here with you. We are considered children of God. And that that one moment in time with a real meal with Jesus would be so impactful for the rest of our lives in terms of your invitation to us. Lord, may we seek to be like you more and more every day, God, and help us to be that way too, Lord. We thank you for this morning. Ask your blessing as we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.